Book Seven, Sections Four through Nine of Politics by Aristotle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Politics by Aristotle, translated by Benjamin Jowett. Book Seven, Sections Four through Nine. Four. Thus far, by way of introduction. In what has proceeded, I have discussed other forms of government. In what remains, the first point to be considered, is what should be the conditions of the ideal or perfect state. For the perfect state cannot exist without a due supply of the means of life. And therefore we must presuppose many purely imaginary conditions, but nothing is impossible. There will be a certain number of citizens, a country in which to place them, and the like. As the weaver or shipbuilder or any other artisan must have the material proper for his work, and in proportion as this is better prepared, so will the result of his art be nobler, so the statesman or legislature must also have the materials suited to him. First among the materials required by the statesman is population. He will consider what should be the number and character of the citizens, and then what should be the size and character of the country. Most people think that a state, in order to be happy, ought to be large. But even if they are right, they have no idea what is a large and what a small state. For they judge the size of the city by the number of the inhabitants, whereas they ought to regard not their number, but their power. A city, too, like an individual, has a work to do, and that city which is best adapted to the fulfillment of its work is to be deemed greatest. In the same sense of the word, great, in which Hippocrates might be called greater, not as a man, but as a physician, than some one else who was taller. And even if we reckon greatness by numbers, we ought not to include everybody, for there must always be in cities a multitude of slaves and sojourners and foreigners. But we should only include those who are members of the state, and who form an essential part of it. The number of the latter is a proof of the greatness of the city, but a city which produces numerous artisans and comparatively few soldiers cannot be great, for a great city is not to be confounded with a populous one. Moreover, experience shows that a very populous city can rarely, if ever, be well governed, since all cities which have a reputation for good government have a limit of population. We may argue on grounds of reason, and the same result will follow. For law is order, and good law is good order, but a very great multitude cannot be orderly. To introduce order into the unlimited is the work of a divine power, of such a power as holds together the universe. Beauty is realized in number and magnitude, and the state which combines magnitude with good order must necessarily be the most beautiful. To the size of states there is a limit as there is to other things, plants, animals, implements, for none of these retain their natural power when they are too large or too small, but they either wholly lose their nature or are spoiled. For example, a ship which is only a span long will not be a ship at all, nor a ship a quarter of a mile long, yet there may be a ship of a certain size, either too large or too small, which will still be a ship, but bad for sailing. In a like manner, a state, when composed of too few, is not, as a state ought to be, self-sufficing. When of too many, 
though self-sufficing in all mere necessities, as a nation may be, it is not a state, being almost incapable of constitutional government. For who can be the general of such a vast multitude, or who the herald, unless he have the voice of a stentor? A state, then, only begins to exist when it has attained a population sufficient for a good life in the political community. It may, indeed, if it somewhat exceeds this number, be a greater state. But, as I was saying, there must be a limit. What should be the limit will be easily ascertained by experience. For both governors and governed have duties to perform, the special functions of a governor to command and to judge. But if the citizens of a state are to judge and to distribute offices according to merit, then they must know each other's characters. Where they do not possess this knowledge, both the election to offices and the decision of lawsuits will go wrong. When the population is very large, they are manifestly settled at haphazard, which clearly ought not to be. Besides, in an overpopulous state, foreigners and medics will acquire the rights of citizens, for who will find them out? Clearly, then, the best limit of the population of a state is the largest number which suffices for the purposes of life, and can be taken in at a single view. Enough concerning the size of a state. 5. Much the same principle will apply to the territory of the state. Every one would agree in praising the territory which is most entirely self-sufficing, and that must be the territory which is all-producing, for to have all things and to want nothing is sufficiency. In size and extent it should be such as may enable the inhabitants to live at once temperately and liberally in the enjoyment of leisure. Whether we are right or wrong in laying down this limit, we will inquire more precisely hereafter, when we have occasion to consider what is the right use of property and wealth, a matter which is much disputed, because men are inclined to rush into one of two extremes, some into meanness, others into luxury. It is not difficult to determine the general character of the territory which is required. There are, however, some points on which military authority should be heard. It should be difficult of access to the enemy, and easy of egress to the inhabitants. Further, we require that the land, as well as the inhabitants of whom we were just now speaking, should be taken in at a single view for a country which is easily seen can be easily protected. As to the position of the city, if we could have what we wish, it should be well situated in regard both to sea and land. This, then, is one principle, that it should be a convenient center for the protection of the whole country. The other is, that it should be suitable for receiving the fruits of the soil, and also for the bringing in of timber and any other products that are easily transported. 6. Whether a communication with the sea is beneficial to a well-ordered state or not is a question which has often been asked. It is argued that the introduction of strangers brought up under other laws and the increase of population will be adverse to good order. The increase arises from their using the sea and having a crowd of merchants coming and going, and is inimical to good government. Apart from these considerations, it would be undoubtedly better both with a view to safety and to the provision of necessaries, that the city and territory should be connected with the sea. The defenders of a country, if they are to maintain themselves against an enemy, should be easily received both by land and by sea, and, even if they are not able to attack by sea and land at once, 
they will have less difficulty in doing mischief to their assailants on one element, if they themselves can use both. Moreover, it is necessary that they should import from abroad what is not found in their own country, and that they should export what they have in excess, for a city ought to be a market, not indeed for others, but for herself. Those who make themselves a market for the world only do so for the sake of revenue, and if a state ought not to desire profit of this kind, it ought not to have such an emporium. Nowadays we often see in countries and cities dockyards and harbors very conveniently placed outside the city, but not too far off, and they are kept in dependence by walls and similar fortifications. Cities thus situated manifestly reap the benefit of intercourse with their ports, and any harm which is likely to accrue may be easily guarded against by the laws, which will pronounce and determine who may hold communication with one another, and who may not. There can be no doubt that the possession of a moderate naval force is advantageous to a city. The city should be formidable not only to its own citizens, but to some of its neighbors, or, if necessary, able to assist them by sea as well as by land. The proper number or magnitude of this naval force is relative to the character of the state, for if her function is to take a leading part in politics, her naval power should be commensurate with the scale of her enterprises. The population of the state need not be much increased, since there is no necessity that the sailors should be citizens. The marines who have the control and command will be free men, and belong also to the infantry, and wherever there is a dense population of periochi and husbandmen, there will always be sailors more than enough. Of this we see instances at the present day. The city of Heraclea, for example, although small in comparison with many others, can man a considerable fleet. Such are our conclusions respecting the territory of the state, its harbors, its towns, its relations to the sea, and its maritime power. 7. Having spoken of the number of the citizens, we will proceed to speak of what should be their character. This is a subject which can be easily understood by any one who casts his eye on the more celebrated states of Hellas, and generally on the distribution of races in the habitable world. Those who live in a cold climate and in Europe are full of spirit, but wanting in intelligence and skill, and therefore they retain comparative freedom, but have no political organization, and are incapable of ruling over others. Whereas the natives of Asia are intelligent and inventive, but they are wanting in spirit, and therefore they are always in a state of subjection and slavery. But the Hellenic race, which is situated between them, is likewise intermediate in character, being high-spirited and also intelligent. Hence it continues free, and is the best governed of any nation, and, if it could be formed into one state, would be able to rule the world. There are also similar differences in the different tribes of Hellas, for some of them are of a one-sided nature, and are intelligent or courageous only, while in others there is a happy combination of both qualities. And clearly those on whom the legislator will be most easily led to virtue may be expected to be both intelligent and courageous. Some say that the guardians should be friendly towards those whom they know, fierce towards those whom they do not know. Now passion is the quality of the soul which begets friendship, and enables us to love, Notably, the spirit within us is more stirred against our friends and acquaintances 
than against those who are unknown to us, when we think that we are despised by them, for which reason Archilochus, complaining of his friends, very naturally addresses his soul in these words, For surely thou art plagued on account of friends. The power of command and the love of freedom are in all men based upon this quality, for passion is commanding and invincible. Nor is it right to say that the guardians should be fierce towards those whom they do not know, for we ought not to be out of temper with any one, and a lofty spirit is not fierce by nature, but only when excited against evildoers. And this, as I was saying before, is a feeling which men show most strongly towards their friends, if they think they have received a wrong at their hands, as, indeed, is reasonable, for besides the actual injury, they seem to be deprived of a benefit by those who owe them one. Hence the saying, Cruel is the strife of brethren, and again, they who love in excess also hate in excess. Thus we have nearly determined the number and character of the citizens of our state, and also the size and nature of their territory. I say nearly, for we ought not to require the same minuteness in theory as in the facts given by perception. 8. As in other natural compounds, the conditions of a composite whole are not necessarily organic parts of it. So in a state, or in any other combination forming a unity, not everything is a part, which is a necessary condition. The members of an association have necessarily some one thing the same and common to all, in which they share equally or unequally, for example, food or land or any other thing. But when there are two things of which one is a means and the other an end, they have nothing in common except that the one receives what the other produces. Such, for example, is the relation which workmen and tools stand to their work. The house and the builder have nothing in common, but the art of the builder is for the sake of the house. And so states require property, but property, even though living beings are included in it, is no part of a state. For a state is not a community of living beings only, but a community of equals, aiming at the best life possible. Now, whereas happiness is the highest good, being a realization and perfect practice of virtue, which some can attain, while others have little or none of it, the various qualities of men are clearly the reason why there are various kinds of states and many forms of government. For different men seek after happiness in different ways, and by different means, and so make for themselves different modes of life and forms of government. We must see also how many things are indispensable to the existence of a state, for what we call the parts of a state will be found among the indispensables. Let us enumerate the functions of a state, and we shall easily elicit what we want. First, there must be food. Secondly, arts, for life requires many instruments. Thirdly, there must be arms, for the members of a community have need of them, and in their own hands, too, in order to maintain authority, both against disobedient subjects and against external assailants. Fourthly, there must be a certain amount of revenue, both for internal needs and for purposes of war. Fifthly, or rather first, there must be a care of religion, which is commonly called worship. Sixthly, and most necessary of all, there must be a power of deciding what is for the public interest, and what is just in men's dealings with one another. These are the services which every state may be said to need. 
for a state is not a mere aggregate of persons, but a union of them sufficing for the purposes of life, and if any of these things be wanting, it is, as we maintain, impossible that the community can be absolutely self-sufficing. A state, then, should be framed with a view to the fulfillment of these functions. There must be husbandmen to procure food, and artisans, and a warlike and a wealthy class, and priests and judges, to decide what is necessary and expedient. 9. Having determined these points, we have in the next place to consider whether all ought to share in every sort of occupation. Shall every man be at once husbandman, artisan, counsellor, judge, or shall we suppose the several occupations just mentioned assigned to different persons? Or thirdly, shall some employments be assigned to individuals, and others common to all? The same arrangement, however, does not occur in every constitution. As we were saying, all may be shared by all, or not all by all, but only by some, and hence arise the differences of constitutions. For in democracies all share in all, in oligarchies the opposite practice prevails. Now, since we are here speaking of the best form of government, i.e., that under which the state will be the most happy, and happiness, as has been already said, cannot exist without virtue, it clearly follows that in the state which is best governed and possesses men who are just absolutely, and not merely relatively to the principle of the Constitution, the citizens must not lead the life of mechanics or tradesmen, for such a life is ignoble and inimical to virtue. Neither must they be husbandmen, since leisure is necessary both for the development of virtue and the performance of political duties. Again, there is in a state a class of warriors and another of counsellors who advise about the expedient and determined matters of law, and these seem in an especial manner parts of a state. Now, should these two classes be distinguished, or are both functions to be assigned to the same persons? Here again there is no difficulty in seeing that both functions will in one way belong to the same, in another to different persons. To different persons, in so far as these, i.e., the physical and the employments, are suited to different primes of life, for the one requires mental wisdom and the other strength. But on the other hand, since it is an impossible thing that those who are able to use or to resist force should be willing to remain always in subjection, from this point of view the persons are the same, for those who carry arms can always determine the fate of the Constitution. It remains, therefore, that both functions should be entrusted by the ideal Constitution to the same persons, not, however, at the same time, but in the order prescribed by nature who has given to young men strength, and to older men wisdom. Such a distribution of duties would be expedient and also just, and is founded upon a principle of conformity to merit. Besides, the ruling class should not be the owners of property, for they are citizens, and the citizens of a state should be in good circumstances, whereas mechanics or any other class which is not a producer of virtue have no share in the state. This follows from our first principle, for happiness cannot exist without virtue, and a city is not to be termed happy in regard to a portion of the citizens, but in regard to them all. And clearly property should be in their hands, since the husbandmen will of necessity be slaves, or barbarian, periochi. Of the classes enumerated there remain only the priests, and the manner in which their office is to be regulated is obvious. 
no husbandman or mechanic should be appointed to it, for the gods should receive honor from the citizens only. Now, since the body of the citizen is divided into two classes, the warriors and the counselors, it is beseeming that the worship of the gods should be duly performed, and also a rest provided in their service for those who from age have given up active life, to the old men of these two classes should be assigned the duties of the priesthood. We have shown what are the necessary conditions, and what the parts of a state. Husbandmen, craftsmen, and laborers of all kinds are necessary to the existence of states, but the parts of the state are the warriors and counselors, and these are distinguished severally one from another, the distinction being in some cases permanent, in others not. End of Book 7, Sections 4 through 9